Taking Stock with Mandy Johnston. Thanks to Skillnet Ireland, driving business success through innovative training and upskilling. This is News Talk. Welcome to News Talks Taking Stock. I'm Mandy Johnston. Now, coming up on today's programme, Russia may be isolated and alone politically, but it's still very powerful and unabashed in its aggression. We're going to be joined by an expert in Russian affairs to explore the roots of the conflict. And Donald Trump is back with his own megaphone. It's called Truth Social. It's a new media platform. Will it have any implications for politics in a world where the normal rules no longer apply? And managing Ireland's waste one coffee cup at a time. We'll be joined by the Conscious Cup campaign group. They'll tell us about the government's plans to introduce a latte levy shortly and how much it'll cost us across the counter. You can get in contact with us by emailing takingstock at newstalk.com or on Twitter at StockNT. First up today, I'm joined by Dr. Neil Robinson, who is Professor of Comparative Politics at the University of Limerick. And he's an expert in Russian politics and its post-communist economy. Neil, before we talk about the developments this week, um, perhaps you might just start by outlining to us where the Ukraine fits in the political psyche of Russians and more particularly for Vladimir Putin. Why is it so important to him strategically? Well, there's there's two questions there. Um, the first, that uh, how Russia fits into the political psyche of, of Russia. The roots of that are obviously that the origins of the Russian state were in Kiev back in the, the, the 9th and 10th centuries. That's where uh, the Russian people first became Orthodox Christians, uh, and that's where there was a first identifiable sort of Slavic state. So Kiev uh, and Ukraine, for a lot of Russians, are the birthplace of the of the Russian state. Uh, and uh, that's obviously one of the reasons why Putin says that, you know, sort of Ukraine really doesn't have the basis for independent statehood uh, and that it should be reincorporated into the larger Russia so that uh, a people who share a common heritage and culture uh, are no longer separated. But strategically then, um, you know, sort of obviously the Ukraine lies across Russia's western border. Um, you know, sort of, if you're a Russian nationalist, it's the area that, um, you know, sort of uh, threats have come from over the last couple of centuries uh, as, uh, as, as Russia has, you know, sort of uh, faced invasion. Swedes, Poles, Livonians, the French, um, uh, uh, and obviously then uh, the Germans in the in the twentieth century. So uh, it's a uh, an area that Russia has this sort of historic connection to, uh, but it's the area where you know sort of many of their main security concerns have been uh, focused on uh, over the last couple of hundred years. Um, now, this week's developments, um, and this might seem like a very broad question to somebody like you, but this week's developments is is the formalisation, if you like, of an invasion which has been years in the making. Can you just take us through how we got to this point? Well, I suppose it really all starts with the collapse of the Soviet Union. Mm-hmm. Um, Russia uh, uh, agreed with other 
former Soviet republics, uh, that it would honor uh, the borders of those states. Uh, but the borders of those states were, you know, sort of often uh, had been drawn up by uh, Soviet leaders in a pretty arbitrary fashion. So uh, people from um, ethnic groups were suddenly found themselves living in, in different countries and uh, uh, eventually having different passports. Now, uh, you know, sort of many people reconciled themselves to that, but there were some that didn't. And the, some of the people who didn't were in uh, the east of Ukraine and in Crimea. So when uh, Ukraine went through a series of political crises, uh, particularly sort of 2014, over whether it would draw closer to uh, Russia um, or, or whether it would go closer to um, uh, the European Union, um, uh, Russia took advantage of that, um, you know, sort of political instability uh, to annex Ukraine and to encourage uh, the sort of uh, so-called separatists, the rebels uh, in Donetsk and Luhansk, uh, and they set up these people's republics of, of Donetsk and Luhansk. Uh, and by doing that, what Russia did was uh, effectively um, uh, divide Ukraine uh, and prevent it ever becoming a, a member of NATO, uh, because obviously you can't join NATO uh, unless you control your national territory. And if part of it is, is, is saying that it's, it's separate, independent, uh, and part of it is under the control of a, another country, Crimea, uh, then, you know, sort of you can't join NATO because then NATO would automatically find itself at war um, uh, and it's supposed to be a defensive rather than an offensive alliance. So Putin did that and, and that, you know, sort of brought him some temporary advantages. But over time, those advantages have diminished. Ukraine didn't collapse. It didn't split up further. Um, you know, sort of, uh, it even began to recover a little bit uh, after 2014. Uh, and that brings us to where we are now. The settlements in 2014-2015 took the emphasis, I suppose, away from uh, Russia a little bit as well and, and on to Syria. But th that's maybe another day's debate. Just coming back to this week's developments, were you surprised at all by the pace and the scale of the developments as they happened over the course of the last week? I thought that there was a possibility that Putin um, last week was going to sort of uh, react positively to the, the Russian parliament, the Duma, and its call uh, for the um, uh, the recognition of the independence of, uh, of Donetsk and, and Luhansk. But then the rapidity with which mm. they did that and then said that they were going to respect Donetsk and Luhansk's claims to the entire territory of the Donetsk and Luhansk region, the, the, the rebels only controlled a fraction uh, of the original territories, that then you know, sort of very rapidly pushed us to uh, the point where uh, we got war. So, you know, there was a lot of commentary, a lot of people saying, well, what we've seen is, you know, sort of uh, Russia making an aggressive move and then stepping back so there could be negotiations. Well, the step back this time was the blink of an eye. Mm. Um, you know, uh, and that was uh, a little shocking uh, in how quickly they moved towards, uh, towards military action. But the logic of it was there once they sort of made that recognition of, 
of Donetsk and Luhansk and said that they were going to honour their claims to the entire territories. That inevitably was going to cause conflict with the Ukrainian army. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston, and I'm joined by Dr Neil Robinson, who's Professor of Comparative Politics at the University of Limerick, and we're discussing the Ukrainian conflict. Now, before that happened, Macron and Schultz um, all engaged in efforts to try and... um, ease the tensions and to try and find some diplomatic solution. Would you consider this a failure of global diplomacy that we've come to this point? Not really, no, because um, it's very difficult to see how that diplomacy could have worked. The demands that the Russians made about Ukraine and security guarantees that Ukraine would never become a member of NATO and that NATO uh, deployments would be pushed back to the levels they were uh, in 1987 those demands were never going to be met uh, because they they couldn't be met. Um, and, and anyway, there, there are actually fewer NATO troops in Europe now than there were in 1987. So, you know, sort of it was a bit of an odd demand. So, But, the, but in terms the, of him, sorry, Neil, in terms of him yeah. engaging then, was what's happened over the last number of weeks and months indeed just Putin stringing everybody along? Well, no, what he wanted to do was talk to the Americans directly. Okay. Um, You know, sort of what he's, what I mean, you've seen this a lot, um, uh, particularly over the last week, it's become much stronger. But, you know, sort of you could see it brewing a few weeks ago when Macron first went uh, to to Moscow. Macron sort of afterwards said there was some talk about Russians de-escalating. And the Russians more or less immediately said, well, you know, we we, we haven't agreed to that. And anyway, if we do agree with that, we'll be talking to the organ grinder of the United States. We won't be talking to his monkey, effectively, the president of France. So their view of this has become, you know, sort of fixated on the United States and the idea uh, that uh, Europe does doesn't matter mm. um, either as individual countries anymore or as the European Union and the, what matters is the puppet master of the United States. Okay and let's just examine that piece then about the EU um, because we've had condemnation of Putin um, by the EU, the UN, NATO indeed but beyond all of the rhetoric uh, the West does and in particular the EU looks very exposed and disjointed. Do you think that that lack of unity you know, heretofore has exposed and even been exploited by Vladimir Putin. Yeah, it's one of the reasons why, you know, sort of he lacks a certain amount of respect mm. uh, for, for Europe um, and sees it, uh, you know, sort of uh, ultimately it'll do whatever the United States says. There are some divisions uh, and have been in Europe, but, you know, sort of, you know, sort of Germany, Italy uh, have, you know, sort of historically been, and, and to a lesser extent, maybe France, have historically been uh, friendlier to uh, Europe than, well, Britain when it was in the European Union. And and the new uh, states, obviously Poland, uh, Latvia, um, uh, Estonia, Lithuania, uh, have their own, you know, sort of <laughs> history with Russia, which means that they're they're always sceptical. Mm. Um, so Putin, I think, has always thought that he could um, manipulate those divisions uh, and uh, achieve more uh, by dividing Europe than he has actually been able to achieve, to achieve. So yes, Europe can be, you know, sort of soft in certain dimensions on Russia, but but it does, in moments of crisis, come together. Mm-hmm. Now, it might not come together as far as you'd want it to come. Mm-hmm. You know, sort of, there may be still, you know, sort of um, disagreements about how far sanctions should be 
truly punitive uh, of Russia even now. Uh, you know, sort of rumours about you know sort of people wanting various opt-outs for various industrial, agricultural sectors, etc. for for sanctions. But you know, sort of it will come round. Uh, it will come. To a common position on condemning this, uh, the, there will be more attention paid to NATO. So you know, sort of, Putin doesn't really get what he wants uh, out of out yeah. of his aggressive actions. So exposing their divisions and exploiting them is one part of it, but also Russia has become much stronger. And I know this is something you you spent a lot of time examining. The state itself is far stronger now, isn't it? That's a really good question. I mean, the perception is is that the state has become much stronger under Putin, and it has, but only really in uh, the sense that um, uh, the military has become much more powerful over the the last decade as as Russia has sort of spent more money uh, upgrading its forces. In other dimensions, it's still not very strong. Um, it still struggles to, you know, sort of control corruption. It still struggles to get people to obey the law. Uh, and so, um, you know, sort of it's a it's a very one dimensional political system in Russia. It's militarily strong. Putin is strong in that he has been able to suppress uh, uh, opposition uh, and make sure that there are no elite rivals to him. Uh, but the strength of the state is is fragile in certain key dimensions, and 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 that's one of the causes of of, of what dissatisfaction there is uh, with Putin's rule, because people are not always satisfied by uh, the stability of the economy, their ability to sort of uh, uh, feed, clothe themselves, keep themselves warm, uh, and you know sort of protect uh, themselves and their families uh, from uh, rapacious, corrupt. Uh, officials. Neil, the sanctions um, from the US, the UK and the EU um, have been happening all week and the Kremlin are at pains to point out that they can absorb any of these. There's been sanctions in place since 2014. They've had very little effect, haven't they? Well, they've had little effect on him, but they have had a moderate effect on the Russian economy. Um, they actually sort of, you know, made the Russian economy slightly more militarised even than it already was. Um, uh, if we now move to, 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 to a new set of sanctions uh, and potentially some of the sorts of sanctions that are talking about, you know, sort of a full-scale lockout of, um, of, of Russian financial institutions from the international banking system, um, uh, the uh, blocking of, of, of certain kinds of technology transfers into Russia, uh, then the effects on the economy will be much, much stronger. And although, you know, sort of Russian... Um, have generally been supportive of, of, of Putin's foreign policy. Um, they are very wary of aggressive action and do not seem to support aggressive action uh, when uh, it will affect their livelihoods. So there is still some hope for sanctions. But I don't think uh, sanctions can be the only weapons that are used here. Uh, there also need to be political measures. There need to be much more careful policing of of the, the Russian money uh, that already uh, is in the West uh, and uh, you know flows through places like the uh, the Financial Services Centre in, in Dublin. All of those things need to be uh, looked at and examined. Uh, you know, sort of we need a, a sort of full spectrum push back uh, against 
uh, Russia's uh, interests and its elite interests economically across the globe, as well as political measures. Now, one of the things that surprised a lot of observers was that Germany moved so quickly to cancel the Nord Stream 2 project. How do you think that that's going to impact um, on European's gas supply uh, in the first instance and whether or not it has implications for us here in Ireland? Well, it definitely has implications for all of us because all of our electric and gas bills are probably going to go up and the amount that we pay for uh, a litre of petrol uh, at the pump is probably going to go up as well. It's it's an open-ended question at the moment because what we don't know is what is going to happen to the, the gas uh, lines uh, and the pipelines that go through Ukraine. There are obviously, you know, sort of, you know, it's, it's still, and particularly if Nord Stream 2 doesn't come online, it is, you know, sort of one of the major transit routes uh, for gas um, from Russia to Europe. Uh, and uh, the lines through Ukraine directly feed some European countries, and they're almost wholly dependent on the gas that they get for Russia on, on those Ukrainian lines. Well, what happens to those lines? Can Russia protect them? Uh, what will the Ukrainians do to them uh, mm. if they're threatened militarily? If Ukraine you know, really, really wants to punish Russia, then blowing up those pipelines would be that uh, um, one, you'd have thought. Uh, and then that just leaves Nord Stream 1, the original Nord Stream pipeline, uh, and the pipeline that goes south across the Black Sea. Ironically, Germany did act quickly by saying it wasn't going to license Nord Stream 2. But, you know, sort of uh, if something happens to the pipelines in Ukraine, then Nord Stream 2 might be one of the ways in which uh, Europe keeps warm. Yes, certainly the issue of energy security has become much more of a a sort of political tool and in a faster way than than we might have imagined. Just one final question I want to to ask you, um, Neil. If the sanctions and everything that happens around this now are um, all designed to make Russia more isolated from the West, let's say, in terms of trading and financial outputs and stuff, will they not look then to China for more support and cooperation? Are they not pushing them more and more towards China with all of these efforts? Yes. Uh, they are. Uh, and, you know, sort of Putin has obviously made quite a bit about uh, his links to Xi Jinping and, and the Chinese over the last little while. But first of all, uh, they don't have the pipeline infrastructure to sell oil and gas to China. There's some there, uh, but there's nowhere near the same amount as there is uh, to, to Europe. Uh, so, you know, sort of he's not going to be able to replace European money with Chinese money. He can replace, um, you know, some technology um, uh, that he get from the West uh, with technology from China, but he's going to be faced with a hard bargain from the Chinese. So replacing the West with China is an option, but it's not one that's going to bring simple benefits to, to, to Russia. Its population, if you like, is Europe-facing, not China-facing. You can make a go at uh, replacing uh, European connections with Chinese connections. But they're costly. They're costly politically, and they're more costly economically. And if you've got an economy that's already stagnant, that's just another drag on growth that you don't need. Well, Neil, thank you so much for those insights and for going through the history of this conflict and how we got to this point. That's Dr. Neil Robinson, who's Professor of Comparative Politics at the University of Limerick. Thank you so much for joining us on News Talk today. Thanks. You're welcome back to News Talks Taking Stock. This is Mandy Johnston. We're joined now from Los Angeles by Ryan Mack, who is technology reporter for The New York Times. Ryan, you're very welcome and thanks for joining us today on News Talk. 
Thanks for having me. Now, Ryan, I just wanted to kick off today with a little quote from Donald J. Trump, who, uh, as we know, was launching his new platform this week. He said, we live in a world where the Taliban has a huge presence on Twitter. While your favourite American president has been silenced, this is unacceptable. So you might start off, Ryan, today by explaining to us what Truth Social is and what does it aim to do? So Truth Social is his new social network um, created under this technology group umbrella that he he is chairman of. Um, it is supposed to be a place where he can post, connect with his followers, essentially give him all the the kind of connections he had prior to being banned from Facebook and Twitter in the aftermath of the January 6th insurrection. Truth Social had a kind of a soft launch last week and effectively looks like a Twitter. It, it he he is supposed to post there. He's only posted once. And it's supposed to be a place where you go and connect, I guess, with him and other like-minded individuals um, who no longer find Twitter kind of usable. Now, who's behind it? Uh, where's the finance coming from? He is he is the found, one of the founders, and uh, or he is the founder, and he's the chairman. Uh, it's being run by CEO Devin Nunes, who, of course, is the former congressman. Uh, from California, who is a big Trump supporter. And the financing has come from a variety of, of places. There uh, was a, a SPAC deal, which is this kind of blank check company funding mechanism that's been very popular over the last couple of years that people have poured money into. So uh, there is a, a publicly traded financial shell company that people can invest in that will eventually merge with the parent company of Truth Social. Um, that will give the company more than a billion dollars in financing when that merger happens. Now that's under investigation at the moment uh, because of some potential skirting of financial rules, but that's where the the financing is coming from. So is it is it operational now? Does it have the regulatory approval that it requires? Can you can you actually follow it now as a as an ordinary punter? Yeah. This- the site and the app, uh, the app is only for Apple users. It is working for some people. Some people have been able to register and, and get online. The full launch supposedly won't happen until the end of March, uh, where everyone can use it. So right now, it's only a select number of users, people that have been in a wait list. Even with that, there's been a lot of technical issues, a lot of downtime, a lot of issues with the wait list. Um, they had, I guess, a burst of popularity when they first kind of soft launched on Monday. Um, But they're kind of dealing with the aftermath of uh, keeping the site online and keeping people going through the uh, registration process. So it's been a little bit of a a mess right now. So Trump has said that this is about, quote, encouraging free and honest global conversations without discriminating against political ideology. I'm sorry, I can't help but thinking that this is just a safe space for people with extreme views to engage with other like minded people. Do you think that this is just creating those type of echo chambers for him? With these sites, I mean, there has been plenty of other sites to pop up like this that brand themselves as quote unquote free speech alternatives to Twitter and Facebook. There has been Parler, there has been Getter, there's even extreme places like Gab where some unsavory things are usually said and has has led to kind of real world consequences. But these these places all offer this ideal of a very free of content moderation space. And I just think that's 
that's not true. Mm. I mean, sites have to do basic content moderation to prevent criminal activity on their on their platforms and to keep things within the norms of social behavior. I mean, for example, I mean, it's it's kind of funny that the company would brand themselves as that. They had a a, a note in their terms of service recently that that users could not disparage the service. So there's clearly boundaries here. And yeah. it really comes down to how those boundaries will be enforced. And I But the I, the boundaries, um, Ryan, aren't aren't particularly healthy ones because debate is such an important part of democracy. Um and in diluting the debate by having those type of constraints, um, you're you're really promoting more single minded platforms that'll just exacerbate anger potentially uh, as we saw last year in the violence and, and mayhem that resulted in, in Capitol Hill. What I wanted to ask you was I suppose about that regulatory piece at least with Twitter and Facebook um, they're trying to make their platforms safer however imperfect those systems are but who who actually polices this site? Is there, is there somebody who oversees it beyond uh, their own operations? With True Social, I mean, I think they've, they've said that they're going to use some kind of AI systems, um, whether, whether that's been developed or whether that's just kind of a promise that remains to be seen. Um, I think it's really unclear how they're going to to moderate their content or if they're going to moderate their content at all. Mm. Um, I think you have to at some point because you have to prevent, again, some of the kind of unsavory stuff from popping up on your platform, whether that is adult porn, for example, or even worse stuff. I mean, some of that stuff probably won't be allowed on True Social. It's not going to be a free-for-all on there. So they're going to have to have some type of moderation. And I'm not sure where that comes from at the moment. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Mandy Johnston on Taking Stock. And I'm joined by Ryan Mack, who is technology reporter for The New York Times. Now, it's obviously hotly debated, even over here, whether this is just the first step in his plans to contest the the presidential election in 2024. What's your view on that? I mean, I think it's hard to read the tea leaves. I do think he has needed, or in his mind, needed a place to post his thoughts, his diatribes for a long time. Mm. Uh, he's He's been without a mechanism for doing that for um, more than a year now. Uh, he's tried his email. He, of course, has his email list. He's tried a, a, def, a now defunct blog, but he really hasn't been able to hit the heights that he had when he had Twitter and Facebook. And True Social will supposedly give him that. Um, I don't know if to the same effect, but typically in the past when he has tweeted something incendiary or controversial, uh, media outlets have picked him up uh, and maybe he gets that same type of lift with with the truth social right now he has only about tens of thousands of followers on his own social network so he has quite a ways to go to build back that kind of follower number or follower count and it's not even clear if those amounts the same amount of people will join truth social just to just to follow him but it is clear that he has been hungry for a place to kind of post and to share his thoughts and that's really what this is um and just to go back on something that you you mentioned earlier those other um niche if you like sites that are popping up parlor and the likes how Mm -hmm. successful are they becoming in the united states i mean i think they've some of them have really hit a wall i mean Mm. parlor became popular towards the end of 2020 but has really seen its momentum shift in the opposite direction Following the January 6th insurrection, of course, it was deplatformed by the Apple App Store, the Google Play Store, and Amazon Web Services for not doing enough to moderate content. 
leading up to January 6th. It's now back, but it's kind of lost all its steam. Um, even, even, even with that, though, I mean, it was nowhere close to the hundreds of millions of users that use Twitter, the billions of users that use Facebook's products. I mean, we're talking about in the low millions uh, of registered users on some of these platforms, things like Getter, uh, for example, and Parler. Um, of course, there's also Rumble, which is the kind of conservative alternative to YouTube, um, which is a, it's a video sharing and, and watching uh, platform that's gotten some traction, but we're talking kind of fractions of the audiences of these mainstream platforms. So Trump um, has always been someone who just refuses to live by the rules. Um, we've, we've seen over here uh, the Russian invasion of the Ukraine this week. He's not alone in that. Um, the world now finds itself increasingly dealing with leaders who just don't respect the principles of democracy. You as a tech reporter, do you think that social media sites aid them in promoting their causes? I think what I would say to that is that there's certainly some world leaders who see the advantages of a, of a Facebook and Twitter account. Donald Trump being the prime example of that, being able to cultivate an online following, um, which is exactly why he is going with Truth Social. I mean, Vladimir Putin, though, however, isn't exactly tweeting every day. He's not sending diatribes. He's not saying he's going to fire missiles or has his hand over the button, but he has other mechanisms by which to broadcast his message. So I think it is case by case. Um, of course, with Donald Trump, he hasn't been able to kind of stay away from social media when he had it. Um, and now that he doesn't have it, he's trying to, I guess, reinvent himself on, on a new platform. Well, Ryan, it's been great to learn uh, more about Truth Social. Thank you for taking the time for being with us today. That was Ryan Mack, who is technology reporter for The New York Times. Thanks, Mandy. You're welcome back to News Talks Taking Stock. This is Mandy Johnston. I'm joined now in studio by Sorka Kavanagh, who's the coordinator of the Conscious Cup campaign. Sorka, you're very welcome and thanks very much for joining us in studio today. Thank you so much, Mandy, for having me today. Now, Sorka, start off by telling us about the Conscious Cup campaign. How did it start and what are you guys trying to achieve? Okay, so the Conscious Cup campaign was started actually by a group of people who were very concerned about waste and it started on a Facebook page called the Zero Waste Ireland Facebook page. It was a group of about 15,000 people in Ireland who are concerned about waste and how much they consume in terms of packaging and food and various different items. Um, a number of us got together and we decided to create a campaign aimed at something that's very visible every day such as the coffee cup and try and engage with people to use a reusable instead. Yeah, now, as you mentioned, it's something that's just become so present in all of our lives. We were talking in the office this morning about how many cups we actually all use. Uh, and we had got quite good, hadn't we, at sort of that whole reusable cup. But then the mm -hmm. pandemic came along and that changed everything for us. It did, yes, Mandy. Um, unfortunately, we we were all really put into shock, I suppose, mode this time two years ago in March when COVID came along and with a lot of organisations and coffee shops not knowing what to do, they put a hold on really accepting reusables. Um, a lot of shops as well, people were doing their shopping and they were coming home and washing down their shopping. We didn't really know what we were dealing with at the time, but mm. thankfully now we have a lot of science and in the early days, even through science, we could 
discover the transmission from uh, packaging uh, to human beings was really, really very low. And do you see that um, there's an openness by businesses to start doing that again, to, to, to providing for the reusable cups? And indeed, will the public want to do it in a post kind of pandemic society? Yeah, most definitely. There is an appetite for reuse again. Um, most of the coffee shops who had stopped accepting reusables are back. There's actually only about two chains that are not accepting reusables at this stage. If anyone wants to know what you know, who is accepting reusables, they can always check out our map on our website um, where you can see cafes all across the country who are engaging in reusables. I think number one, the key here is that businesses do want to get behind reuse because it's really important to them to show that they're, they have a commitment towards a circular economy. We have a lot of policy drivers across Europe and in Ireland with our own um, waste action plan for a circular economy, which will address reuse. We need to move away from single-use products at the end of the day because they do deplete our resources. And even right now, we've got this whole... Um, you know, climate impact, even this weekend, we saw lots of disruption with our supply chains because boats were sitting in the water and not being able to dock to supply goods. If we move towards a reuse economy, we're not as dependent as businesses upon those single-use disposables. And we also make our packaging an asset as opposed to a liability. And when it becomes an asset, we can reuse it and reuse it. And it actually adds and to our profitability. Yeah, and we'll come back to that um, discussion about changing attitudes and forming habits in a moment but I just want to go back a little mm-hmm. bit about the, the cups themselves um, yeah. is it possible to quantify how much waste is generated through the coffee culture at the moment well in terms of cups we would estimate that there's about 22,000 single use cups per hour what? disposed of in Ireland which is phenomenal wow um, and when we think about the downstream aspect to the waste it's huge so what we see on the street the litter that's created through it but more importantly, if we look upstream towards the extraction of the resources and the virgin materials that are used to manufacture those, they create huge carbon emissions. Yeah, and just just that issue of recycling them. Um, remember a couple of years ago, we all noticed to our horror that even though some of them were labelled recyclable or compostable, mm-hmm. that actually we couldn't put them in the green bin. Yeah. What was that all about? And is that still the case? Yes, so at the moment, um, and as has been for quite some time, we have like a recycling list in Ireland which tells us what we can and can't put in our recycling bins. Coffee cups would contaminate the rest of the uh, contents of a recycling bin, which should always be clean, dry and loose. Those three things are really, really important. So the lid, if it's if it's not a compostable lid, can't actually go in the recycling bin once it's dry. But the cup itself can't. It is not on that list. Um, it is agreed by our National Waste Management Association that, you know, only um, single-use coffee cups cannot go in the in the recycling bin. Mm-hmm. If it's a compostable cup, on the other hand, that can go into a compost bin. But you need to be alert to the labelling yeah, for sure. Yeah. yeah. If you're just joining us, you're listening to News Talks Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston, and we're talking to Sorka Kavanagh, who's the coordinator of the Conscious Cup campaign. You're probably using one at the moment as you're listening to us. Um, can, can we talk a little bit, Sorka, about the solutions? You mentioned there earlier the circular economy um, and I wanted to ask you about one of the aspects of that piece of legislation which is the latte levy. Mm -hmm. Can you explain to us what the government are trying to introduce here? 
Sure. So the latte levy or the levy that will be imposed on single use coffee cups is due to be implemented this year. We expect it to be about 25 cents. It is an amount that will act like just like the plastic bag tax. The consumer is the person who takes the cost of that. It is not supposed to impose on the business's profitability. Um, it is up to the consumer really to change their ways. And that's the whole concept behind it. We want to change people's behaviours. People, once you start to engage with reuse with something as simple as a coffee cup, and I know from lots of people who write into us over the years that their um, sustainability journey started with something very simple as a cup. And I remember being even in corporate offices where I sat down and there were green teams being created. And those offices and the, the employees there, often the conversation of, you know, sustainability for them started around their lunchtime, sitting down and talking about the disposables that they were exposed to. And all of a sudden, a couple of months down the road, they've started to look at biodiversity within their corporate culture. They've started to address lots of other different aspects. So it's a, a trigger for conscious consumerism, really, mm. at the end of the day. Yeah, yeah um, I'm, I'm loath to use the word journey, but that's exactly yeah. Exactly it, isn't it? it? Is. We start off with something and it progresses. Yeah. I actually thought Ireland were doing quite well in terms of recycling and embracing that whole culture. But looking at some of the EPA results of late, we've actually mm-hmm. gone a bit backwards in terms of recycling, haven't we? Well, I, for me, I suppose I'm all about reuse as much as possible, mm-hmm. which is further up the waste hierarchy. But I think the last two years have been uh, have been really, really difficult when it comes to packaging because there was such a huge move to disposables. You know, even when we were having takeouts, um, they were being delivered with excessive amounts of packaging, including cutlery, which we already had at home. Yeah. So we want to really change the, the and have systems thinking. And Sorka, how do you do mm. that? How do you suddenly kind of reverse engineer people's behaviour? Do you have a big campaign? Is there some ways that you yeah. have of, of kind of changing things now? Yeah, well, I think for the businesses, it's it would be really key to get behind reuse as much as possible because the bottom line is it's economics as well. It mm. saves money to engage with reuse. So to do that, we need to train our staff to, you know, like, for instance, when you go into um, a store and you're asked, do you want a plastic bag with that? Do you need a bag with that? We'd like to see where there's a situation where people engage with their customers when you come in. Have you got your co- have you got your reusable coffee cup? Something as simple as that. And also making sure that, you know, disposable items are not on view. Um, you can actually increase your cash flow by not spending on those. If businesses actually audited how much they were spending, it could be quite an eye opener. And then, you know, Put them out of view and make them on request only. And that will be part of the new bill as well that, you know, uh, customers must have, they'll have to request if they want disposables. Now, I think we all accept that introducing something like uh, a, a levy like this is not not done to raise revenue, but m- more to create awareness, as, as you've said there. Mm-hmm. But eventually it's going to trickle down into people's pockets, isn't it? Um, Are we just introducing more charges on people who are already facing a lot of difficulties in terms of inflation? How much is this going to cost across the counter? Across the counter? Well, they estimate about 25 cent as a levy on a single-use cup um, for hot drinks. 
Uh, there is another option. You can bring your own cup. So that's an option too. Um, but we would also encourage that, you know, sometimes you go into a cafe and you will see people sitting with a disposable to try and use ceramics first. And actually the, the economics behind it will always say that reuse wins over disposables, especially for the business. Mm. So it's about keeping, the, they operate under very, very tight margins. And when they engage in reuse, they tend to use uh, commercial dishwashers, which operate in a 90 second to up to a three minute cycle. They're very, very fast and they're very carbon efficient as well um, and another aspect of it as well is that we have green public procurement coming so if you know a corporate caterer wants to apply for you know providing catering services in a, a public body there's certain hoops that they'll have to jump over and increasingly there are environmental credentials that companies have to achieve to get points you know and one of those will be in the area of reusables for sure. Sorka, can you just expand a bit on this circular economy legislation? Mm. What other things is it designed to do? So the circular economy is really designed to keep goods in use as long as possible. And reuse, as we were saying earlier, is how we can do that. We, we focus on reusable products, but try and pick the products that are most impactful. Um, circular economy is very much related to the climate. Um, we know that, you know, the more extraction of our resources, the the more vulnerable our planet is really to climate impact. One of the things I've noticed, I don't know if you've noticed as well, is we've we started to discuss a sustainable low carbon society in the context of energy and bigger macroeconomic issues much, much more. Yeah. Do you think that piece about managing your own waste and your own habits has been lost a little bit? I do, yes. Um, I definitely think, touching on one of the questions you asked earlier as well, the visibility of disposables has is just huge at the moment. And while we now have most cafes back accepting reusables, people have fallen out of the habit of bringing their own cup. And that's probably because of confidence, because in the early stages they were rejected um, if they brought them in and they may have felt embarrassed. But I think that that will come back but we just need to increase the visibility of reuse again. And, you know, the perception of cross-contamination of the virus is not, an, uh, catching the virus from reusables shouldn't be an issue at all. You know, once you operate with good HACCP uh, procedures, that uh, as you should with all, mm -hmm. uh, you know, within a restaurant or a catering service anyway, um, it shouldn't be an issue. And in fact, you know, Reuse will save money at the end of the day as well. I remember when the latte levy uh, was first uh, floated, uh, it was quite divisive. And I've heard indeed Adrian Cummins of the Restaurant Association say um, of late that it's it's not fair to businesses who are just starting to get back on their feet. What What would you say to that? I would say it's very important to look at data and metrics and that's where we need to be going. It's very easy for us to brush off a concept and say, let's not look at that. The truth is, I, I can I have to be honest, I was contacted by a lot of cafes over the, the COVID period because some of them ex experienced great difficulty in trying to source single-use cups. Um, to sor source them? Source them, them. yeah. yeah. Wow. And, and not alone source them, the prices have been inflated something else at the moment. I walked into a service station where they had, they had no 12-ounce coffee cups. All they could get their hands on was 20-ounce coffee cups. So they had to actually even increase the size of the cup that they were using. And all of that shows how sensitive supply chains are to any sort of disruption. 
right now you and I are sitting here and we know what's going on about the Ukraine as well and and it's absolutely awful but all of these things are going to severely impact on inflation and access to product um, so I think if anything it says to businesses get behind reuse source local invest in your packaging make it an asset that doesn't depreciate as quickly as single use packaging does um, Is there some place just before we finish that people can go to either get involved in this as a volunteer or find out more about the Conscious Cup campaign? Absolutely. Um, you can follow us on all our social media. We're on Instagram, we're, um, we're on Twitter and Facebook and we also have our website ConsciousCup.ie where you will find a map. In addition to the map um, for where you can find cafes, there is a, there's a resources section and that has posters for cafes if they would like to promote the fact that they're accepting reusables and if they would like to promote the fact that they will have incentives. We'll also have Irish versions of those posters pretty soon, which, which would be great um, because we have had uh, demand from particularly the areas where we have Gwaeltacht. There are cafes who are looking for posters there. Um, I would say also check out the community section because all over Ireland we've lots of people interested in sustainability, tidy towns who've done phenomenal work, transition year students and they can actually implement a campaign within their own area by engaging with their own cafes and it's a very friendly thing really and that's why we've worked with tidy towns because they always have a good relationship with their cafes and it's a community level thing it's it's showing solidarity in your community and sit and sip and have a coffee and enjoy the social aspect to reuse. There you go. Um, okay, unfortunately, we have to leave it there. Um, thank you for that. That's Sorka Kavanagh, who's the coordinator of the Conscious Cup campaign. Sorka, thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Mandy. Well, that's it for this episode of Taking Stock. I hope you found today's topics interesting and somewhat informative. If you have any suggestions about the issues that you would like us to cover, then please get in contact with us on Twitter at StockNT or on our email address at TakingStock at Newstalk.com. We'd love to hear from you. Now, while we broadcast at this time on Sunday mornings, we're also available as a podcast first from Friday mornings on the Newstalk app. And you can hear extended conversations on the podcast because we've got a bit more time. Thanks to all of our guests today for taking the time to be with us. Thanks also to the production team of Simon Keane and Jojo Cardoso, who's on sound. So from Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston, thanks for listening and enjoy the rest of your day.